Today we're going to talk about uh, <clears throat> the land of Israel and also the state of Israel. Uh, as you may or may not know, November 29th is a milestone date in the state of Israel's development and founding. We'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, but we're going to start really from, from the Bible's times. And uh, we're talking about a little bit the history of Israel and what happened and what transpired very quickly. Just kind of like an oversight, an overview uh, of, of this very important central part of Jewish life and living. But I think one question I want to present at, on the outset, which I think really you know, looms large in any discussion that we have about the state of Israel, um, any religious, any historical, any political discussions, is what's all the fuss about? You know, you go to Israel and you see a land and you see, I don't know, stop signs and traffic lights and police officers and there's uh, taxes and, you know, there's mountains and valleys and different seasons. What's the big deal? This is a country in the, uh, uh, like any other, you would seem, you know, that's what it looks like. Uh, yet it's been the center of Jewish focus for millennia. Multiple, like three millennia at least. Uh, it's been the yearning of the Jews. Go back to Jerusalem, rebuild, re- rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, reestablish the state of Israel. All that has been so central to the yearning uh, in exile for thousands of years. And the question is why? What's it all about? What's all the fuss about? And incidentally, as we all know, we'll get to this a, a little bit later as well, um, secular Zionism, we'll talk about secular Zionism versus religious Zionism, but secular Zionism kind of didn't understand the fuss either. You know, uh, Herzl threatened to quit the Zionist movement uh, if they didn't adopt the British offer of taking Uganda as a place for the Jewish state. So, uh, and there was this tremendous tension because the religious Zionism, to them, it was only about Israel. And the secular Zionism, the you know, it's the, the it, you know, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. R- rationally, you want a state. Let's get a state wherever they give us. It could be in Africa. It could be in Asia. It could be Buffalo, in New York. A Grand Island in Buffalo, New York. That's right. In 1825, there was a movement to establish a Jewish state in a tiny little sliver of of land that separates uh, that near Niagara Falls and in uh, in Buffalo, New York, which is. I wonder how that would have worked out. <laughs> it's even smaller than the state of Israel, if you could imagine anything smaller than that. <laughs> so, so I want to start off by talking a little bit of the uh, of kind of the the Jewish perspective, the Jewish traditional perspective of of establishment of a Jewish uh, uh, settlement in the land of Israel. What's it all about? So let's start with the Talmud. Talmud says here that the mitzvah of settling the land of Israel is equal to all the rest of the mitzvahs combined. So if you take the mitzvah of Shabbat and Passover and give it a child of circumcision, study Torah, and you make a pile of all the mitzvahs, 612 of them. Even visiting the sick. Visiting the sick, everything. And then you put on the other side, the mitzvah of settling the land of Israel, they're equal. Wow. Which is surprising. And it's... Doubly surprising when you find out that there are several mitzvahs that they say the same thing about. For example, the mitzvah of studying Torah. You put that on the scale and put the other six, 12 on the, on the other side of the scale. They're even. Yeah, what about observing the Sabbath? Is that that would be a third. The, six, the seven, seven such mitzvahs. Okay. And my grandfather, of blessed memory, wrote one of his last books that he wrote was 
two approaches to understanding these seven mitzvahs. What's special about these seven mitzvahs that the Talmud labels them in seven places, disparate places, uh, labels them that these mitzvahs are equal to all the mitzvahs combined. So one of the themes that emerges from that discussion, or from that, uh, from that book, is the idea of holiness. And, I, and when I say the word holiness, everyone gets a little uneasy, because the word holiness, or as we say in Hebrew, kedushah, um, it doesn't really have a good definition. Well, how would we define holiness? Separate. Oh, there you go. So that's a good definition. <laughs> uh, but if you ask the guy, typical guy in the street, what does holiness mean? It's, it's probably the, the paramount um, level of goodness. I would say uh, peace. God-like. Okay, so we have we have different definitions of and now holiness is a central word in, in, in Jewish for sure spirituality, but even religion. And we find that the land of Israel is the holiest of land. Well, what does that mean? You go there and you inspect the soil, and it's the same soil. Uh, you go there and you try, it's a good question. What does it mean to be holy? So I, I think I don't want to talk about holiness for that for that long, but I think the the, the core idea is that holiness is not something that can be measured in uh, material and physical properties. You can't measure it. You can't find it on the microscope. It's like a soul. The soul is really holy. Well, how do we measure the, the holiness of a soul? Like, how do we measure the soul to begin with? It's not something physical and tangible. So the, whatever it is about the land of Israel, yes, it's wonderful and it has all the different seasons and it has mountains and it has, you have snow-capped mountains and you have the desert. You have everything there, this tiny little sliver of land. But whatever is holy and special about the land is not something that is easily perceived. It's something where um, you look at the land and it has, it has multiple layers. There's the physical layer, which is wonderful, and then there's a the spiritual layer, the holy layer, which you really kind of have to work hard to observe. I'll give you guys an example of, of, of what I'm trying to say here. We find a great episode in the Talmud of one of the great rabbis, Rabbi Zera, and he... Uh, he emigrates from Babylon to Israel. As we'll see a little bit later, the Jewish people for many, many hundreds of years had, uh, had concurrent communities, one in Israel, one in Babylon. And there was a very frequent uh, um, uh, transfer of, of people, of ideas as well, from one to the other. So this great rabbi comes and he comes to Israel. And, uh, and, they, uh, and he starts praying. What does he pray? He prays to forget all of his Torah. Now, why would you do that? You're a great scholar, you know a lot of Torah. Does it make sense that you should, I don't know, now you're in Israel. Like, this is a wonderful place. This is a nice confluence of, of Torah and Israel. It's wonderful. Why would you forget to pray? So Thomas says he, forget to, he, wanted, he, he, he prayed to forget it. Sorry. Why, he prayed to forget it because the Torah of Israel is on such a higher quality, he doesn't want to have to be bogged down with the Torah of the diaspora. Which, to us, it doesn't make any sense. It's like we're talking about things that are so intangible. But on the spiritual level, there's something incredibly different about the land. And I encourage anyone here, uh, next time you go to Israel, if you haven't been, I encourage you to be there. I was there two weeks ago, so I'm kind of a little fresh. Um, you go to Israel, and you the big question you have to ask is, can I feel it? Can I sense it? Is it something different? Do I, do I, I go to the Western Wall? I, go to the, uh, I look at Temple Mount. Does it mean anything to me? And if it does, if you feel something, then you know that you have a connection with your spiritual self as well. Because your soul feels it for sure. The question is, do you feel your soul or not? 
For the soul, it's like Disneyland for a child, for a baby, for the baby's body, right? It's delighted. It's in a place where it's, it's, everything's wonderful. The soul feels at home suddenly, less resistance to its environment. If you feel something special, then you know that you can feel a little bit into what your soul's going through. If you don't, then, then you know that you have to try to access that. You know? How do you access feeling what your soul is going through? You know, that's a good question. But if you could do that, you would feel different in the land of Israel. They could take someone, someone who has a spiritual sensitivity, they, they, would, they could blindfold him and drop him anywhere in the world and about to tell you, is this Israel or not? Because they could feel Well, no, it's 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 spiritual. It's it's not kind of like anything that's that's but not. You can feel it. That's right. So you, you oh, it's like the force. Ooh, it's like the force. That's what I just said. May the force. Is the force? Is that the force? I don't know. I just is that is that what the force is? Is that is that what the force is? I'm not I'm a Star Wars uh, novice. I apologize. That's a good analogy. Never watched the movies. Are you guys another example? And some people feel like they've been there before. That's very interesting. That's right. I give you another example here. We talk about Shabbat. Right? Shabbos Kodesh, we say. We call Shabbos the Holy Shabbos. And, you know, it's a day. There's Sunday, Monday, there's Saturday, right? What's the difference? So my grandfather told the story that when he got to Yeshiva in the Mir in 1934, uh, you know, there was the, the leaders of the Yeshiva, the heads of Yeshiva would sit in the front. And all the students would sit like, you know, that's the way it, that's the way it still is today, Right? The rabbi's in the front, correct? And uh, he got there on a Tuesday. And then on Friday night, he asked one of his, he asked one of his uh, friends, he asks him, well, who's that new rabbi in the front? There's a new guy there. Does make any, you know, is there a guy who comes only for Shabbos? He said, no, 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 no. That's, that's the same rabbi as the rest of the week, but the whole week his face is ashen, and on Shabbos his face is flushed. He says, literally, I, I trust my grandfather, he says this, literally, the man looks entirely different, the wheat and then Shabbos. They look different, they look different. Kind of analogous to um, Moses when he went to the burning bush and came back, his, his face, that's what kind of reminded me of what you just said. Yeah. Is well, there a similar... Uh, and that's like the idea of holiness. It's, it's for some people they feel it and it's different, but for some people they don't feel it. You know, there's a discussion in the Talmud as to what happens if someone is shipwrecked or whatever, they lose track of time. When is Shabbos? You're on an island by yourself, and you lost track of time, you're, you're delirious, and you wake up, and you finally have your wits, and you want to observe the Shabbos. What do you do? Do it every day. Well, no, that's impractical, right? So it's, it says, well, you're, you're, you don't know. You're separate from society. You just, no, you count seven days, and that's, that's what the Talmud says. And then... I heard someone's, I don't remember the details of the story, but someone says, no, like, what they would do is they would just wait till they feel it, and they know when it's Shabbos. So, it, so it's this idea that it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's going to be imperceptible, imperceptible for most, but for the people that have the spiritual sensitivity, to them, they can feel it. They have the antenna, and therefore, they pick up the signal. It's an interesting idea uh, about Israel uh, to begin with. Well, that, that would be the same, like, if you're going into a synagogue... You go to the synagogue for service, you get this feeling or during the uh, holidays, you, get, you walk in the synagogue and there's people around you and all of a sudden you feel that, that would be the same kind of thing. 
Yeah, well, I'm saying holiness is one of the central aspects of, of Jewish life. Um, the high holidays, <laughs> right? They're called uh, the high holies. You know, they're days when, uh, when we are more likely to be sensitive to these, to these, uh, to these uh, spiritual uh, um, realities that are, uh, that, are, uh, that are there and present. I want to give us an example of this, just to make this a little more practical. We find the, in the following verse in Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus 18. Leviticus 18 is a very famous chapter because it deals with all the forbidden sexual relationships that someone is allowed to have, or not allowed to have, prohibited. And it goes through the whole list, you know, and then it gives us uh, five verses at the end um, of the repercussions of what would happen if people do these things. And I'm going to quote here. Ooh, what am I? My iPad just restarted. <laughs> okay, so I'm not going to quote. I'll paraphrase until it turns back on. Um, uh, so it says like this. It says, don't defile yourself in all these various ways. Right? Don't sin in all these sins that, that were enumerated in the previous verses. Why? Because if you do, the land will vomit you out. Justify yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. The people that are currently in the land of Israel, right? The Torah tells the Jewish people, the people that are there now, they sinned with all the sins that we just recently enumerated. And because this, the, the, the land was defiled, I punished it for its sin, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you, Jewish people, you keep the Torah, and you observe these laws... And don't do these things because all the people that were here that lived there before you, they did it, the land became defiled, and if you do the same thing, you too will be vomited out of the land. Which is a very a very bizarre statement, but essentially Jewish people are told the reason why the people that are in the land now are going to be displaced and you're going to take their place is because they sinned and the land has an immune system that it can't bear such sin and it'll expel, expels them. And you two, you're going in, it's the same land. And it's that same immune system. You sin it, you sin in it, the land will expel you. Hopefully I'm not jumping the gun, Rabbi, but okay, you said the people there now, 2015, you know, which have have returned after the first vomiting, so to speak, or whatever, uh, or dispersal, uh, they are, not everybody is observing. So is it saying they're going to be vomited out again, or is the Messiah well, going to Well, well, that's a good that? question. That's a good question. But let, we, we look at history, and we see the Jewish people being expelled multiple times from the land of Israel, which is a, religion, it was a historical phenomenon that has not happened many times. Um, so it could now, happen the, does that mean, Of course it could happen again. Does that mean that um, it happens right away? Of course not. We know that any of the, uh, any of the uh, predictions in the Torah... Uh, of you do bad and you'll get punished, there's always some time, uh, leeway, uh, for you to rectify your ways. We know with Noah, right? Noah, right? In the Noah, the flood story, uh, the Almighty tells Noah that they have 120 years now to fix themselves. So there is a lot of flexibility, but sure. it's that not was forever. Israel, right? That's true. That's true. That's and just Noah an example. Wasn't even Jewish, was he? That's right. He was not Jewish. Okay. Um, but uh, clearly, what we're told here that our control of the land, or anyone's control of the land of Israel, is, uh, is conditional. 
if they defile the land, the land will send them packing. And we see in history that when they did defy the land, they got packed. Now, it didn't take, you know, it didn't happen instantly. It didn't happen overnight, but it happened. And we happened multiple times. Uh, and that's because the land itself has spiritual sensitivity. So we don't have this anywhere else. We don't have that. We might have some other sensitivities in the land, but the land itself is holy. There's a spiritual nature to the land uh, that precludes it from being a, uh, a haven for a nation of sinners. And that's why the people before you were expelled, and you too, you will be expelled if you uh, behave the way they do. Now, I uh, read just that book that you recommended on Lashon Haraw. Yeah. Or he was just the passage last week was that during that time, Hashem was extremely patient watching all this. But when we started speaking with Shonen Haraw towards each other, that's when it was like, that's when it's all over. Mm-hmm. Gosh, let's go. Yeah, Gosh, let's just being ill, Ill spotted towards being, you know, talking about each other, hatred towards each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's actually interesting because we, we in the Talmud talks about the first temple versus the second temple. We, we look at the temple as being the epicenter of Jewish settlement in Israel. And both times when the Jews were exiled, the exile or, and the dispersal was punctuated by destroying the temple as well. So the first time by the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, if you heard that name, mm-hmm. um, and the second time by the Romans or Titus and, Vesp- and Vespasian. Um, but both times the Jewish people were spelled, but it started off with, you know, uh, uh, or, or part of the, in Jewish, you know, in the Jewish perception, we look at the, this, the destroying of the temple as being the final death knell for Settlements, so but having idolaters worship in, in the temple, how much can the man take anyway? Well, the man. Well, the we were yeah, yeah. I agree. I wouldn't. I, w- I wouldn't label him as a man, but um, well, yeah. I know what you how mean. Much, um, responsibility, and I know that's probably not the greatest of words, but how much responsibility does? Like what? Um, well, the idolatrous um, going Yeah, but what's, what's also interesting is that when we go down, we go down collectively. Um, you can't say, oh, because you're, a, you know, you're the prophet Ezekiel and you're a wonderful guy that you don't get swept away with everyone else, right? I understand that you get swept away, but is there not a hierarchy of why things fall? Well, of course, of course. If someone has outsized responsibility, if they're one of the great leaders and one of the rabbis, one of the respected people, then they're going to be um, have more responsibility to ensure that everyone's behaving, you know, the, properly. So, what happened with the temple? Why did the, uh, the rabbis allow such goings-on? Well, they they didn't necessarily. They didn't. Um, but there were a lot of factions that were not loyal to the rabbis or not loyal to tradition. Uh, we know that. We'll talk about that as well today. How um, could an argument be made? And this may be getting a little off the subject. That um, Jesus may have been even more Jewish, quote unquote, in that respect than some others, because uh, of the story of he uh, overturned the temple when he saw all the. Yeah. The, well, uh, that was just one thing. I think there was a lot of. I don't think it was just money changing that was going no, on. No, but he clearly had problems 
with temple leadership. Well, so you're turning my father's house into a... Yeah, well, but the, the temple leadership at that time yeah. was not the rabbis. It was not the kind of the traditional perspective. It was the Sadducees. Right. The Sadducees sold out, you know? The Sadducees. They, what about the uh, other group? Uh, the, the Pharisees. Pharisees. The yeah. Pharisees are the name that we call... We, that, that, that's for the, the mainstream um, Jewish uh, community. Um, which, uh, incidentally, it's you know they weren't called they didn't call themselves Pharisees, you know. But what does the word Pharisee mean? Who knows where the word, where the word comes from? Which word comes from, from the Hebrew word Purushim. Parush means someone who abstains. What it means is that there were a lot of new innovations. They were and, and if you call them if you call them innovations, then we call them regressions. But the Sadducees say, "Oh, we have a new innovation. We'll do it this way." And the Essenes says, "Oh, we have a new innovation. We'll do it this way." And the Judeo-Christians, they say, oh, we have a new innovation, we'll do it that way. And the people that say, I'm withholding, I just want to keep it the way it always was, they're called the Prushim, they withheld from all the different factions, and they're called the Pharisees, but they're actually not no different. They're not a new new group. I would say similarly in... in majority. Huh? <coughs> I, don't know silent, I don't know if they were majority at the time. They, might have, they weren't necessarily majority, but they weren't, you know, they were the ones who were sticking to tradition. I would make the argument... Uh, you know, it's, it's not an argument. It's, it's clear that uh, the term orthodox, right? So uh, that term is a new term. We don't find that um, bef- uh, before the uh, 19th century. But what does it refer to? It refers to someone who's not reform or conservative, whatever, right? But it's not a, it's not a new movement per se. It's essentially the, the Jews who are sticking to tradition. So, so the temple leadership at the time were the Sadducees. They were always the elite and the the, the Kohanic um, uh, um, people. They were changing, and then they became. Oh, the, the, yeah. The, the, you know that's why we talk about the in the second temple. There was a lot of corruption because the people that were running the temple were actually not in line. You can read very interesting if you look at the at the Mishnah, the book that talks about what happened on Yom Kippur. You read about the, the rabbis having to negotiate with the high priest to make sure he does everything correctly because the Sadducees would come and they would corrupt their service. And all the Jews are relying on the Kohen God, on the high priest, and that was a position sold to the highest bidder, and they wouldn't necessarily do everything properly. And it was a disaster. And then I have to talk to them, make sure you know, you're the representative of the people and you have to do it, and if you do it wrong, you're gonna, you know, you, we're all going to suffer together. And... Uh, and then it would say that even if he wasn't a Sadducee, they would tell him the same thing, and then he would start crying because they, you know, they uh, accused him of being a Sadducee, and they would cry because they have to go through such, uh, you know, such a terrible vetting process to make sure that, you know, the most important day, the most important service by the most important leader of the people is done correctly. So, um, so to answer your question. This is a fine kettle of fish they got themselves. Yes, and uh, you know, and that all can culminated. In, in essentially civil war, and then the Romans say, oh, you, you, guys, you guys want to kill each other? We'll do, we'll, we'll do the job for you. And that's why we say that the second time was destroyed in Sinat Chinam, a senseless hatred, baseless hatred from one Jew to another. Uh, either way, uh, back to our introduction. We'll get to your passage. We won't, we won't necessarily do it uh, as thoroughly or slowly <laughs> as uh, to get to BB at some point. Uh, we're going to get to BB today. I assure you. <laughs> and we're still in the uh, biblical stuff. So. Uh, My wife went to school with the, the 
Oh, is that right in Boston? No, he won no. Jeffy at Cheltenham. Oh, 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 not not uh, not the university. Yes, he went down there, but this was high school. That's right. He's uh, yeah, the 60s. He, he lived there. He lived in Israel. He lived in he lived in Philadelphia. That's right. Okay. So, uh, what's the Jewish claim to the land? This is very important uh, because the very first verse in the Torah, uh, Rashi, the great commentator, asked the question. He says, "Hey, the Torah is a book of laws and instructions. Why is it necessary to give us the story of Genesis, the story of Noah, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the?" The tribes and the exodus. Well, just give us the laws. Start from the laws and just make it a book of, of laws as it is purported to be. And he says, because we have to establish our claim to the land of Israel. When we, when we want to move into Israel, the, Jews, the Gentiles say, hey, who are you to come in the land? We'll say, well, we have a document that is our deed to the land. You know, and that's Genesis. Because look, the Almighty created it, and then he tells it created the whole world, and Israel as well. Therefore, he's the rightful owner. And he says to Abraham, and to Isaac, and Jacob, each one of them gets the same blessing that you or your descendants are going to have the land of Israel. And look, we are those descendants, and therefore the land is ours. Um, and interest, interestingly, we know that Ben-Gurion himself made that claim, uh, despite the fact that you know maybe he didn't necessarily behave in a way that uh, demonstrated that he believed that it was a divine document, but that has been traditionally our claim to the land. Now, we also have claim based upon international law as well. Um, you know, we captured it just like the Americans captured Texas, right? <laughs> you know, or we, they annexed Texas. You know, how, how does that work? That's the way it works, is that, you know, what, what makes us the rightful owners, owners of Kentucky? Why? Because that's the way it works. You know, when you capture it, you own it. Uh, so if we capture the land in 1948 and 49, well, then it's ours. You know, I don't want to get in the, in, bogged down by the details, but that you know we have a historical claim and we have also a political claim to land as well. Um, now, we know, uh, last element before we get into the history, we know that um, there are many mitzvahs that are only applicable in the land of Israel. In fact, outside the land of Israel, the maximum amount of mitzvahs that some can do is around 130. So we're talking about 613. The only way to get anywhere close to that number is actually in the land of Israel. Point being that the intention of the mitzvahs were that they would be fulfilled in the land of Israel. And incidentally, we might have mentioned this prior, uh, in some time, uh, some discussion we had prior, uh, Jacob... And the forefathers as well, they only observed the Torah before it was given in the land of Israel. Thus, how did Jacob, how was he allowed to marry two sisters? The Torah says very clearly, You can't marry two sisters. Well, it was outside the land of Israel. They're about to enter the land of Israel. Rachel uh, has to die. Because she was the one who encroached upon that because he married Leah first. Rachel has to die on the doorstep of Israel. Are there any negative commandments only with Israel, or is it just the positive commandments? Well, there are like the Shemitah. We talked about the Shemitah, right? The don't, you know, don't uh, plant, don't sow, don't reap, don't harvest. That's in the land of Israel. Why is that a negative? Well, it's a prohibition. It's not negative, but it's a prohibition. Yeah, it's a prohibition. But there are many, many examples. Uh, you know, all the laws of purity and impurity, the what you can eat, what you cannot eat, all the sacrifices, all that stuff only applies to the land of Israel. 
Wait, many wait, them wait, are. You're saying what you can eat and cannot. No, not not, not 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 the kosher laws. I'm saying the laws with regards to sacrifices, right? So, you know, if you go to the temple with an animal and you say, "Oh, I want, I want lunch," right? So you bring the animal to the sac- to the temple and they make you a steak. You got to eat that, right? But you got to eat it in in Jerusalem. You have to eat it a certain amount of time. You have to eat it right. in a certain status of pure uh, of, of physical and spiritual purity. Yeah. All those laws, and there are many of them, apply only out of Israel. Uh, my grandfather once said this line. I think it's it's interesting for the, uh, the, uh, the context of our, of our discussion. He says the Jewish people that left they left Egypt, and forty nine days later, they got the Torah. So the Jews need 49 days to prepare for the Torah. And they needed 40 years to prepare for Israel. Interesting. So let's start with, with Abraham. Abraham, as we know in Genesis, is instructed to go to the land of Israel. Uh, he travels the land. He goes up and down. You know. And I, I, when I was in Israel, I was telling my kids on the phone, I said, this is the place where Abraham walked. How remarkable is that? And by the way, there's a mitzvah to settle the land of Israel. And that is, uh, you get a mitzvah every four cubits you walk in the land of Israel. So every eight feet that you walk in, in the land of Israel, it's a mitzvah. And this is where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived and walked. We know that Isaac never left. But Abraham left uh, when, uh, when there was a famine. So Abraham leaves, Jacob leaves as well to go to Egypt. Jacob goes to get married. And by the way, from these discuss- from the, from these uh, storylines, we find out that when are we allowed to leave the land of Israel? There's a mystery to live in the land. What are we doing in Houston, Texas? Right? So, well, Jacob left to get married. So if you're in the land of Israel and you want your spouses elsewhere, well, then they, that would be a good reason to leave. Right? Abraham leaves because there's no food. If there's no economy, you can't make a living... Right? That's a reason to live elsewhere. But the Jewish attitude is always, we, leave in, we live in Israel unless we can't. It's not like, oh, it would be wonderful to go visit or to go live in Israel. Wouldn't that be wonderful? The default status is that we, we live in the land of Israel. If we can't live for whatever, for whatever reason, well, then we can leave. But not the other way around. Uh, as we know, uh, the people end up, uh, the, 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 Jew, the Jewish family uh, ends up in Egypt with the Joseph story. We're going to read it actually in this week's Parsha. Uh, they all end up there, 70 men, 70, 70 souls, and they, they're there for a couple of hundred years. And the small fledgling tribe has uh, burgeoned into a nation. And we know the Exodus story. I want to get, I want to talk about the Exodus story because we could. We're talking about Israel right now. Uh, they spent 40 years to read the Torah. It's a wonderful book. Uh, and Moshe dies on the doorstep of Israel. Joshua's the new leader, and he leads them into the land of Israel. And we know they spent 14 years in conquest and division of the land. Very importantly, uh, they offer peace terms to every city they encounter, every, every nation they encounter. They're for peace terms. Uh, and and uh, some nations accepted the peace terms, some didn't, and war resulted. So we know the first battle was the Battle of Jericho. And, uh, uh, you know, actually, interestingly, Jericho was a well, very, very heavily fortified city. How would uh, a nation of recently uh, liberated slaves, how are they going to capture the city of Jericho? So we know, you read the story, that they actually did it in miraculous fashion. 
you know, because the nation at that time was worthy of being treated with miracles. Therefore, and miracles were no big deal. Therefore, uh, therefore, they were able to capture uh, Jericho miraculously. Now, what happens when we look back? You know, it's possible we could find some tremors of, uh, or some evidence of an enormous earthquake that just uh, subdued the city, knocked down the walls, and we were able to walk in and capture. Yeah, but a, a perfectly timed earthquake is a miracle. A perfectly timed tornado that splits the sea is a miracle. That's, that's how we define miracles. <laughs> perfectly timed natural events that aren't that frequent. So the Jewish people enter the land, and the land there's, the, you know, there's no major empire dominating the land. We know that uh, up till recent history, uh, the world, or the, or the known inhabited world, uh, is essentially a, a game of musical chairs between these enormous empires. Uh, so at the time, we have the Egyptian Empire, we have what's called the Mesopotamian Empire, where we meet a lot, of, a lot of other empires as well. But Israel is kind of sandwiched between these massive empires, and we don't really have a dominant empire. In fact, we have um, multiple little city, what we call city-states, right? 31 of them, seven different nations, 31 different city-states. Each one of them has a king, each one of them has an army, each one of them has, is, is well fortified, and each one of them is going to be a thorn inside of this new emerging nation, the, the, the Israelites. Uh, eventually, after 14 years, they capture, they, they kind of have a conquest of the majority of the land. But for the next roughly 400 years, the period that's recorded in the book of Joshua and Judges, primarily Judges, we're going to have a reality where the Jews have the land, or most of the land. They don't have Jerusalem, they don't have all the land, and they're in constant battle and skirmishes with these other nations, like the Philistines, we know, the great thorn in the side of the Jews. Um, and uh, that period of the time, of the, of the period of Judges, we also do not have a king. So the leader of the nation is going to be one of the judges. There's 16 judges, Joshua being the first judge, Samuel being the last judge, and that, trans, uh, you know, the, you know, that uh, transforms into the era of kings. Right? Samuel is the one who's going to anoint the first king of Israel. But uh, other prophets uh, that uh, uh, in, in the interim we have the prophet Devorah or Deborah or Deborah, right? That name. Uh, we actually had a female prophet. How, how's that for pray, being progressive and being egalitarian? Mm-hmm. Um, if, if the woman is the one who is most capable of leading the people and then she's the one who is going to be nominated, going to be the leader. We have, of course, um, uh, famous names that you may know, uh, Gideon or Samson, Samson battling with the Philistines, etc., uh, etc. Et but the last line of the Book of Judges kind of sums up this period, that there was, uh, uh, there was no king, there was anarchy and chaos, and ish hayashar everyone did what was right in their eyes. Uh, so while you had the land, most of the land, you didn't have Israel, you didn't have a temple, you had a kind of this minor temple in a place called Shiloh, mm-hmm. and uh, you don't have the kind of security and prosperity uh, uh, in, in you know, the fullest sense of the words. And then we meet a fellow by the name of Saul. Right? 
Saul is going to become the first king of Israel. And that's going to usher into the era of kings, as recorded in the book of Samuel, the book of Kings. Um, and it's a very interesting story how Samuel actually anoints the new king. Uh, and that is because Sa- Saul, the great scholar, the great military leader, right, head and shoulders above all his peers, he actually lost his donkeys. And what do you do? He lost his donkeys. What do you do when you lose your donkeys? You go to the local prophet. Right? The prophets served not only a spiritual role, they served a very practical, pragmatic role. Right? They, you know, they were the ones who knew, and they knew they could tell you, hey, you know, what should I, which major should I choose? Right? They're, they're confounding questions. A lot of people, which area of, you know, of, of, of business or uh, uh, which vocation shall I choose? Which is a good question a lot of people, ha- a lot of people have. People had that in ancient times as well. And uh, instead of taking the best guess or having to try to think, they would just go to the prophet. Simple. So you said donkey meant physicality. So you mean... Oh, well, no, I think he might have just been a donkey, right? <laughs> so Saul is looking for the donkey. He goes to Samuel. Samuel tells him the donkey. He says, oh, by the way, you're the new king of, king of Israel. And he takes the special oil and he pours it over his head. And that's the process of anointing a king. And he got the donkeys as well, but uh, now he got a lot more. And Saul is what we know as the perfect uh, picturesque. We have the we have the uh, primary season now, right? So we're looking to try to find candidates to represent our uh, two uh, parties. We already have a bunch of donkeys. We'll get to that. <laughs> and we're always Only looking. On one party, sir. So. We're looking um, for the. You know, the, you know, the perfect candidate, someone who is charismatic, someone who is intelligent, someone who knows the issues, who's a little bit of a want, but not too much of a want, someone who's personable. A bit bipolar. Uh, exactly. Whatever, right? Someone who's crazy enough to want the job. Right? That's what we're looking for. Trump. Uh, we're not going down there, right? Um, yes, we are. Okay. <laughs> uh, but Saul, if, if you were to create a king in a lab, it would look like Saul. He was a great scholar. He was a great warrior. He he had the you know the, you know the gravitas of a king. He was everything. He was you know cookie cutter perfection. And we know that his reign was a disaster. It was tragedy from beginning to end. And we'll see this as a theme that's recurring, wherein the leaders of the Jews are not necessarily the ones that you would say from the onset. These are the people that are designed and engineered to be great leaders. And the polar opposite of that is King David. King David's own family, like, you know, well, well, it was a mess, but he was an afterthought. He was the kid that everyone would say, he was the black sheep of his own family. He was the kid that said that his own siblings said it would amount to nothing. And he's the one who's the model of a great Jewish king. And he's the one from whom all kings, all future kings, and the Messianic line uh, uh, comes through. So uh, the quick story here with with Saul uh, is that uh, Saul made a crucial mistake. The prophet tells him that the Almighty wants him to smite the nation of Amalek, or Amalek. And he does that, but he spares the king, and he spares a bunch of cows. When... When the prophet tells you, I want you to exterminate 
and wipe out this nation because this nation is a bunch of Hitlers, you do it, right? And then when you kill the, the cows, you kill the cows. Don't say, oh, well, the cows are, you know, they're harmless. Yeah, you may think they're harmless. The prophet tells you, you listen to the prophet. He spears the king of Amalek, whose name is Agag, who goes on to father a child that is going to be the antecedent of Haman. And uh, the prophet Samuel himself hunts down Agag and kills him himself, but the traces of Amalek will continue and will cause tremendous pain and suffering for the Jewish people. Saul goes, uh, Samuel goes back to Saul and says, okay, you know what? You're done. Your monarchy has ended. Uh, God, in God's view, you're no longer the king. And then we have this transitional period where Samuel goes to find a new, a new king and he finds David, but Saul still has the throne, still has the army, and still has the monarchy. And everyone still thinks that Saul is the king and he doesn't, he doesn't want to relinquish his throne. Right? Samuel, in Samuel's view, he's no longer the king. And in God's view, he's no longer the king. And Saul, uh, Samuel goes and he finds David. We know the story. He goes to Jesse's uh, family and he finds David. And Well, he finds, really, he says, he says to Jesse, he says, hey, one of your kids is going to be the king. So he presents the oldest one. No, not this one, not this one, not this one. All of them. So where, is there any more? Like, yeah. There's the gingy, as they say. There's the redhead in the backyard. He's with the, he's with, wasting his time, you know, shepherding. You know, he plays music. Not the right guy. He says, well, let me just take a look at him. And he takes a look at him. He sees his hair's red. And he gets a little nervous. He sees his eyes are, uh, are blue, we're told. And he says, ah, oh, he, these beautiful eyes. And the eye, he'll be the kind of the visionary. You know, he'll, he'll follow the visionaries, even though his hair reminds, of, reminds us of Esau. He has a violent streak to him. And he anoints him as well. Now David's the king in God's view, and Saul is the king in the people's view. And that does not necessarily go without conflict. And, so, and David demonstrates tremendous heroism. We know the David and Goliath story. Uh, uh, Saul is essentially enchanted by David, but also terrified of him because he knows that David could mean the end of his reign. And he tells, he tells, he makes an announcement, whoever gets me 104 skins of Philistines, uh, I'm going to give him my daughter, Michal. Now, how do you, get a, how do you extract the foreskin off a Philistine? You've got to kill him first, right? Because uh, they're not, they're not, they don't usually, there's no like, uh, there's no like donation center, like a plasma, donate your plasma, donate your blood, and donate your foreskin. At least not in ancient times. So David goes and gets not 100, he gets 200 foreskins, right? And then Saul says, ah, I'm actually not going to be my daughter. Sorry. You know, so David essentially is married to, to Saul's daughter, Michal, but he goes and marries her off to someone else. You know, because he kind of reneges on his, on his pledge. Either way, eventually Saul dies, uh, and the guy comes and tells David, oh, I've got great news, Saul is dead. And David gets terribly down because Saul was a great leader, and Saul was the called Mashiach Hashem, the Messiah of Hashem, and uh, and. It, you know, but eventually uh, uh, David is the undisputed <coughs> king of, of Israel. By the way, just a little quick note: um, the term Mashiach, right? The term Mashiach means anointed one, because the Mashuach means to uh, to anoint someone with oil. Thus, and the Greek word Christos means anointed. 
So the term Christ that we have uh, does not mean anything. Does not mean Son of God or any of that nonsense. It means Anointed One. Now, uh, because the Christian claim that their Lord and Savior was the Anointed One, you know, Jewish claim, we reject that. Uh, but it doesn't mean that means the term has nothing to do with uh, divinity of any sort. So we could. It would be um, accurate. Would it not to call uh, David uh, Christos, right? That's what he's called. David is called Mashiach Hashem. That's what David is called Mashiach. Um, Saul, uh, Saul was as well. He was the king. He was the king. By the way, high priests were also anointed. And they're also called Mashuach. Mashuach means that they're anointed, but there's different kinds of, um, and there's different kinds of high priests. There's, there's high priests that are only anointed for war. So they're called Mashuach Muhammad means they're anointed for war. But the word Mashiach, all it means is that was the ancient, at least Jewish process, <coughs> of uh, inaugurating new leaders. You know, I want to just stop for a second and, and look at just a, a, um, a theme that we mentioned earlier, but now we'll look, about, uh, look at it uh, in great detail. We have this week's Parsha. We have this, in the Parsha, of, uh, we have the story of Judah and Tamar. We talked about this. Uh, I know, one of your favorites. <laughs> Uh, well, what actually is going on, it's, it's unclear, but essentially Judah, uh, he uh, has a relationship with what he thinks is a random prostitute. Turns out it's his, his uh, ex-daughter-in-law, and they produce twins. Not ex-daughter-in-law. Well, yeah, well, Still the daughter-in-law. Well, no, but her, his two sons had, been, had died. Okay. Right. Uh, had former daughters-in-law, but now still daughters-in-law, still daughter-in-law. But actually, the husband, Judah's son, is dead. And when you read the story, read the episode, it's very bizarre. Like, something's wrong. Like, something's off here. Something's off. Like, why would Judah go and solicit a random... Why would she get dressed up as a prostitute? The whole story doesn't make any sense. Very bizarre. Um, But when you look a little bit at the the sources that talk about the story, they talk about this is the process of redemption. Redemption has to happen in these circuitous, unconventional ways. Because we think of redemption as being, you know, marching through the city square. That, that's, not, that's not the way redemption Redemption happens in these ways that are like almost shameful and scandalous. Mm-hmm. And ways that no one would ever consider to be uh, re- redemptive. And therefore they have the ability to do that. Uh, so we find this again and again. We find this with the story of, of, of Judah and Tamar, and they produce the twins, which are going to be the forebearers of the Messiah. If you follow that line a little further, we have Boaz and Ruth. Uh, Ruth is a convert, uh, and her husband is dead as well, and she essentially is really poor, so she's collecting uh, grain in in the field and Boaz notices her and she goes in the middle of the night and snuggles up with him and he eventually married like, what's going on I mean Boaz is the leader of the people and who is this woman and, and why is she snuggling up to him what's the deal here no problem um, and um, and that progeny that she that, that is produced right Oved the father of Yishai the father of David so David's great-grandmother is Ruth, and, and the episode that brought about that was something that we would say is a little scandalous. Uh, and we see it again. Even Moses, Moses the leader, right? The leader of the people, right? Oh, 
who is going to be the guy to lead us out of the land of Israel? Hmm. Let's go look. Someone who's with Pharaoh, who grows up with Pharaoh, that's the right guy to lead? Seems bizarre. King David, he's the guy? Surprising. David and Bathsheba, another favorite of Janet, right? That's the, that's the relationship that's going to produce Solomon, who's going to continue the Davidic monarchy line? And dare I say, this might be a little controversial, Theodore Herzl is going to be the one who's going to bring the Jews back to the land of Israel? Who's Theodore Herzl? He's someone who's, who didn't give his own kid a circumcision. He didn't, he didn't speak Hebrew. knew nothing about, about Judaism. He also proposed to have mass conversion to Christianity in 1890. This is the guy? It's a good question. Has there ever been any, um, any, I don't know how to say this, any study as to why sexuality plays such a strong role throughout every story? Um, whether it's um, Judah and Tamar, or whether it's David and Bathsheba, or whether it's Boaz and Ruth, there's a sexual, con- there's an element well, I'm, I'm saying the, the story that we're highlighting, the, 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 the aspect of the stories that we're highlighting is the fact that, you know, the, the progeny that was produced from what we would say is... Odd unions. Odd unions, yeah. Um, is the family of the Messiah and the family of David and the family of the kings, that, you know, royalty. Um, uh, but, uh, and, you know, that's, that's, that's where scandals happen, Right. Yeah, it, it is. It is interesting. Through all of these people that we now perceive as having greatness in them, they really get up every day and go through life with such everybody. Yeah, I wouldn't say that necessarily, but I'm going to Let let me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant of going. You know that that it's approach. It's a transformative process, though, that you're talking about, where greatness comes. They don't wake up one day and find greatness. They evolve into it. They step into it. We step up to the plate, but I mean, let, 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 let me tell you what happened with Judah and Tamar, according to the Jewish perspective, the traditional Jewish perspective. There is a midrash that talks about what happened with Judah, with Judah and Tamar, and it says that the angel who oversees desire, he came to Judah, and he turned up the 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 volume to such a degree that it withdrew his capacity for free will. Essentially, the idea being, or the theme being, that God is manipulating Judah because God wants this union to happen. Judah would never uh, agree if he, if he had the say in the matter. Um, and essentially, this is the... the, the um, the unconventional ways, that's the only way for our nation to really have these transformations that are brought about by these great uh, episodes of these great individuals that are born out of these relationships. But it's still very interesting. They, the, the point is, uh, it, you know, that we see this theme again and again, and the it's just interesting. I, I, my takeaway is the fact that bombastic proclamations um, well, no. or um, traditional avenues of change that we would imagine as being transformative don't actually work. 
you know, real change on a, such a transformative level happens in a way that you would never imagine. You would never, you would never telegraph that as a, a way for things to really change. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, there's a whole story, of course. Well, Judah, Judah is the family of of, of kings, of, of royalty. You know, Judah's leader. Either way, let, let's let's. Uh, we're at. Uh, oh goodness. Yeah, BB's still waiting. BB is awaiting. We will get him. I assure you. Okay. So then we have the era of David and Solomon. This is what we call the golden age. This is the the zenith of Jewish uh, settlement and land. They have righteous teens. They have peace. They have secure borders. David captures Jerusalem. Right? There's finally the unified land of Israel. Uh, there was prosperity. There's peace. And things are so wonderful that Talmud tells us that they actually didn't accept converts during those 80 years. Because converts we, uh, are, are people that choose uh, based upon principle, sincerely, to join the, join the nation. Well, if the nation is just so wonderful and so everything's so fantastic that anyone would want to join, well, then we can't determine sincerity. And therefore, they took a hiatus of taking time, which is interesting. Um, they capture... Huh? Uh, they capture Jerusalem. David actually makes it his... Uh, mission to actually purchase Temple Mount. He doesn't want to capture it. He doesn't want to have anyone to have any claims on 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 that uh, on that piece of land. He does not get to build it. His son Solomon gets to build it, and Solomon's temple, the first temple. This is fine. We we have arrived. Right. We're at the you know the the you know we're at the uh, the apex. Thank you uh, of of what it was all meant to be. We're there. Unfortunately, it doesn't last that long. And uh, Solomon reigns for 40 years as well. He dies at the tender age of 52. He becomes king at the age of 12. Ain't that a nice bar mitzvah present? Uh, and uh, he, of course, is one of the great, great leaders that we've ever had. Uh, but he dies at the age of 52, and his son, Rechavah, becomes the king. And here is where the, f- the most, maybe the most tragic episode in all of Jewish history happens. Oh, episode or, or, or development. Uh, Rechavim is a young whippersnapper, and he is presented with a dilemma. We have the temple, we have Jerusalem, we have the capital in uh, southern Israel, essentially. And we have most of the Jews, uh, lots and lots of Jews living all across the land of Israel. You have Jews in, all the way in the north, and they feel removed, you know, like it's kind of like the, the people in the cities versus the people in the rural areas of every state that we have in the United, the United States, they feel a little bit out of it. Uh, which, by the way, incidentally, the reason why all the, uh, the state capitals were not in the biggest city, you know, if you think of the biggest city of, of any state, it's not, you're typically not the capital, is because the people that were elsewhere, they wanted to have a bigger say. They knew that, the, you know, if, if New York City was the capital of New York State, then all the people that lived elsewhere... You know they would you know they wouldn't be represented adequately, but that kind of tension existed there as well. You have the people in Jerusalem where the temple is. They have people that came to visit the temple once in a while, uh, but they were outside. You know they're outsiders. They were they were living in suburbia. They were living elsewhere, and um, Rechavam, who's the new king, 
he was presented with options. Should he try to court them and try to engage them more, or should he try to penalize them? And unfortunately, he chose the latter. He penalized them, puts punitive taxes on the people living in the north, and they rebel and secede. That's the short story. Yeah, they why secede. did he want to penalize them? No, to kind of put them in their place. The logic was is that is that uh, you know to, to 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 be a strong leader, you have to make sure people re- recognize and appreciate your dominion, and people are not going to say, "Ah, oh, we're not listening to you. Who are you, some n- young new king?" You know, Solomon. You know, he was worthy. You're not worthy. Oh yeah, I'm not worthy. I'll show you who's worthy. Right? You know, that's the attitude. Unfortunately, it was the wrong attitude. He should have courted them more. He uh, was very uh, fierce with them, and they seceded. And they formed what's known as the Kingdom of Israel in the north, and the Kingdom of Judah is what was left in the south. Now, this terrible, terrible event spiraled out of control. Right? There were efforts, of course, to try to reunify Israel. Unfortunately, they all failed. And we had the southern Kingdom of Judah with the Temple, the northern Kingdom of Israel without the Temple, but the leadership realized that if the Jews were allowed to go visit the temple, they would get inspired. So they said, oh, screw it, we'll build our own temple. And they built their own temple. Unfortunately, you know, build your own temple. And also they built a temple for Baal, the idol. And we have 180 years, give or take, of the northern kingdom of Israel descending further and further down the death spirals of idolatry. And you have the prophets like Elijah trying to bring them back and the whole episode with him and Mark Men Carmel. But you have successive kings that each one of them maybe had great promise, but ultimately they did not withstand the test and idolatry reigned supreme and uh, God's patience, so to speak, uh, uh, weared thin and he brought upon them the mighty, one of the mightiest uh, empires of all time, uh, the Assyrian Empire. Now, our perceptions of, of, of grandiosity of empires uh, cannot fathom uh, how mighty this empire was. And they had a, uh, they had a uh, one of their policies was when you capture a nation, you relocate them in order that, you know, in order that they won't suppress them, they won't rebel. So we have the great uh, uh, Sancheirib. Uh, he comes, and he comes from the north, from Assyria, and he captures and, you know, relocates all the Jews of the kingdom of Israel. And if you've ever heard the term of the ten lost tribes of Israel, those are the, that is the nation of Israel, northern kingdom of Israel, that uh, Sancheirib, he captured and reassigned them elsewhere. They're gone. We don't know where they are. They, they left the land of Israel. Other people were sent to their place. Why did the Assyrians stop at the northern kingdom? Why did they they didn't. South? They didn't. And they went south, and uh, they captured a lot of cities, but they didn't capture they, they, they actually surrounded. Um, they surrounded Jerusalem. And we have the accounting of it as well in the Torah, in the Bible. And it tells of, of, of a great plague that's, that's, that's uh, smote the uh the old soldiers, and they all died. And we looked at it as a miracle, like a plague, an outbreak of influenza or malaria, whatever, that kills a whole army or disables an army. You may look at it today and say, oh, it's just fortuitous that they had uh, a plague that killed them all. 
right? We look, at, we, look, we look at that as a miracle, that because the Almighty was not ready to destroy Jerusalem, the people were not uh, deserving of destruction, therefore they can't be captured. And we actually have today, it's amazing, we actually have, in the British Museum, I actually copied this last night from the Internet, we actually have these great uh, prisms that they, they wrote. Uh, we still have them today. You can go to London and actually read these things. And it says as follows. As for the king of Judah, he, first he talks about his capture of the kingdom of Israel. This is Sancherb talking. Uh, as for the king of Judah, Chistia, who has not submitted to my authority, I besieged and captured 46 of his fortified cities, along with many smaller towns, taken in battle with my battering rams. I took as plunder... Uh, 200,000 people, both small and great, male and female, along with a great number of animals, including horses, mules, donkeys, camels, oxen, and sheep. As for Chistia, I shut him up like a caged bird in his royal city of Jerusalem. I then constructed a series of fortresses around him, and I did not allow anyone to come out of the city gates. His towns, which I captured, I gave to the kings of Ashod, Ekron, and Gaza. It mentions nothing of capturing Jerusalem. And by the way, this account mirrors the Jewish account. We found this recently. <laughs> this is a new thing. Where were these persons found? Uh, they were probably found in, in somewhere in Mesopotamia. Well, you know, when the, uh, when, the, when, the Brit- when the British Empire captured everything, they just took everything and they said, oh, okay, we'll bring it to London. Come. You, want, you want to come get it? Good luck. <laughs> uh, but we mentioned, there's no mention of, we knew, we, in Jewish, in Jewish uh, uh, literature, we find also that, that Sancheir has a siege in the city, but he doesn't actually capture it. Um, and indeed, the southern kingdom of Judah would outlast the Assyrians and would actually be taken down by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, which is the great empire that emerged uh, afterwards. So where are the Assyrians today? The Assyrians are gone, all the great. And where, where are the Babylonians? They're gone. They're all gone. There has to be some remnant. Well, Assyria is a region, right? We know that the Assyrian Greeks as well. They, there's another great empire uh, that emerged, uh, you know, 400 years later in the same region, but not the same, it's not the same empire. We find this again and again in history where you have an empire that lasts for maybe, you know, three, 400 years and is so dominant and, you know, and it's, it's so... Uh, secure and it has everything and it has such 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 dominance, but doesn't last, uh, and it's taken over by some other uh, great empire. And by the way, we're still here. <laughs> and there's been hundreds and hundreds of nations from uh, for, throughout history that were just like us. They were small, were had you know had links to certain territory, were captured by a great empire and are gone. And yet we survive, which is. A great, you know, historical anomaly. Either way, um, the uh, ten years before the destruction of the second of the first temple, we have Nebuchadnezzar the Babylonians sending a contingency of a hundred of ten thousand Jews to exile in Babylon. And this is a, another great theme that we find in Jewish history, which is that the healing comes before the injury. When God wants to injure the Jewish people, right, he first lays the groundwork for the rebirth and rebuilding before the injury. So before the people of, of Judah were destroyed, before the temple was destroyed and all, the, and all the people are sent scattering, there's a contingency of 10,000 of the best and brightest of the Jewish people sent to Babylon. 
they laid the groundwork for what's going to be a tremendously uh, 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 fruitful and flourishing civilization the Jews are going to establish in Babylon. And then 10, 10 years later, when the exile actually happens and all the Jews transition to Babylon, they come and they find Jewish schools and Jewish shuls and there's a, a bagel store in every corner and there's, you know, there's, there, you know, there's a vibrant Jewish life that they can very easily transition into. Uh, this may be controversial, but I think we can make the argument that this emergence of the Zionist movement, the political and religious uh, confluence that kind of sparks up out of nowhere, really, in the 19th century, once again from very unconventional individuals, and gains a very strong backing and starts uh, the resettlement of the land of Israel, which was un- you know, it was unimaginable to the people uh, living in the 14th century, the 15th century, the 16th century, the 8th century, 9th century. Like, the, the, you know, you have pockets of people going to the land of Israel, but a movement of a nation is trying to reestablish a homeland, you don't find that till the 1890s. We can make the argument that that's laying the groundwork for what's going to be the tremendous injury that happened to the Jews in Europe. Where, what, after... The tremendous injury, well, there already is the political uh, groundwork and the agricultural groundwork and the religious groundwork for establishing a state in Israel. And you know what? We have six million Jews living in Israel today, which is remarkable. When throughout the most recent 2,000 years, we had several thousand Jews living in Israel, but no substantial community. Now, almost overnight, historically, we have six million Jews and we could if we zoom out and we don't ask any questions because questions are problematic because a lot of really bad things happened to the Jews the past 150 years but we zoom out 150 years and look how how the nation transformed how essentially you have Jews living in Europe 150 years ago and then there's the settlement of Jews in the United States and the settlement of Jews in Israel and now you have almost no Jews living in, in, in Europe and the ones that are there want to escape and you have Jews living in the United States. Yeah, but I'm saying it's it's yes, it's primarily Jews in France. So France is an enormous, enormous. Yeah, but you have Jews in England as well. French uh, Jews are leaving, and they're all leaving in enormous numbers. It's it's still pretty significant. It's still pretty significant. Um, oh, they yeah, I, yeah. We just have some bad blood. You know what I mean. Moving right along. Um, we're going to go a little faster now, okay, guys? Um, so uh, the Jewish people have an exile. This one exile lasts really essentially 70 years. Jews living in Babylon. Ezra takes a contingency of 42,000 Jews. He reestablishes Jewish settlement 70 years later. But from then on, you're going to have dual communities, one in Israel and one in Babylon for about 1,000 years. Ezra goes and reestablishes the life in the land of Israel. Uh, he rebuilds the temple. The second temple is not quite the same in grandeur as the first temple, but it's still a temple on, on Temple Mount. They do establish some sort of sovereignty, even though it's not complete. They're going to be under the thumb of the various empires at the time, including the Persian Empire. Of course, we know after the Persian Empire came the Greek Empire, and of course, the unforgettable uh, Ptolemy Empire and the Seleucid Empire of Egypt and Assyria, respectively. And, of course, our favorites, the Romans. 
Um, either way, uh, over that time, we're going to see uh, a, a, essentially a, tr- a transition where the kings are no longer dominant. The Sanhedrin is going to take an outsized uh, responsibility. The men of the Great Assembly are going to establish the uh, ground rules for a nation that is A, divided, B, some Jews living in Israel, some live in, Pal- some live, live in Babylon, B, the end of prophecy, uh, C, the, uh, uh, the downgrading of the temple where you don't, no longer have the ever-present miracles. And also, lastly, uh, what, what do we do when we have uh, a nation where uh, central authority is not as, uh, as, as dominant. You, know, you don't have a king, you don't have a prophet. So what do you have? You have the religious leadership. Uh, and that's going to be the central authority of the land. So there's, we're going to see an increase of importance transferred from the monarchy um, and the prophecy to what's the Sanhedrin, which is essentially the Supreme Court or the, the religious authority in the land. But of course, once we don't have that same dominant leadership in the form of kings and prophets, that opens the door for a lot of dissent and a lot of sectarianism. And we're going to meet these different groups, these Hellenists and the Sadducees and all the people we talked about. That is now, Israel is now a breeding ground for a lot, any, 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 anyone who says, oh, I have a new idea. I want to challenge this part of traditional Jewish thought or I want to challenge that part. Now the door, the, the floodgates are open, and the Second Temple era is there's a tremendous tension between these different groups. On one hand, you have the rabbis, we call them Pharisees, if you would like, uh, and they uh, want to stay the course, so to speak. They want to, you know, maintain the, the Torah values, the written Torah, the oral Torah, and you have the Sadducees who say, "Oh, the written Torah is fantastic, but it's all literal. It's all literal and." We cannot rely on our traditional uh, methods of understanding uh, the Torah. Uh, and that's a disaster because you have Jews living next door to each other, neighbors, and they, live, they observe a different religion. And tremendous, tremendous tension. Of course, we know that the, the Greeks, uh, they come and they become the hosts, and uh, we have the story of Hanukkah. Uh, that's... Uh, uh, happens in the land of Israel. Uh, it's once again shows what happens when you have the sovereignty uh, of a foreign nation, yet the ritualistic and religion of a different nation, and they're at uh, odds with each other. So, of course, we know there's, there's, there's culture wars, religious wars between the Jews and the Greeks. Uh, the Greeks, of course, want to uh, invoke as much idolatry as they can into Jewish life. They want to focus on on, on humanism, which is uh, some you know the human is not at the center of the Jewish worldview. God's always at the center, and the Greeks come with their ideas and they say, "Hey, you know, let's talk about the human, the human body. Uh, 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 let's 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 build these gymnasiums and let's 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 have the you know the Greek philosophy, and that's very appealing for the Jews. A lot of Jews get swept away with that, and yet the Jews have uh, competing, but uh, no less." A substantive philosophical arguments. And it's essentially like a philosophical war that, 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 that Hanukkah is really celebrating. It's, a, it's a, um, a philosophical religious war, if you will. It's not necessarily about territory. The Jews were allowed to be in their territory, but they're told, you know, let's study Torah. Torah is anathema to Greek ideology. Well, Greek ideology, Greek ideology is anathema to our ideology. 
Well, what do you have? You have a conflict. Uh, either way, after the story of Hanukkah, there is this brief period where the Jews have dominion and sovereignty over the land uh, for about 100 years. That's what's known as the Hasmonean dynasty, uh, where the Hasmonean family, uh, they're going to be the... Um, uh, the the uh, uh, the monarchs in c- control of, of the land of Israel that goes south uh, pretty quickly. Where you have the Hasmonean kings, they become Sadducees, and you have someone like Alexander Yanai becomes the king and the high prophet. Now, is it true on the opposite spectrum where you didn't allow conversions during you know we, we completely did away with the conversion during that one period? There was forced, right, exactly. There was forced proselytization, which is also against the Torah. Remember, when we have converts, we want to to determine sincerity. If we force them to convert, we don't know sincerity. If it's so appealing that they convert because of all the goodies that that come along with being Jewish, well, once again, we can't can't determine sincerity. But that's another example of how the Hasmoneans did things that were, uh, you know, against, against tradition. But think about this. You have a king who's also the high priest. That's an impossibility. To be a king, you have to be a descendant of King David. Davidic line, the Davidic monarchy. All legitimate kings of Israel are direct descendants of King David. And then you, and to be a prophet, you have to be from the Levi tribe, thus not a descendant of King David. And the Hasmoneans said, oh, well, rules. You know? So you have... And a lot of people are disturbed by that. They don't recognize him as being a king because he can't be a king. There's questions if he could be a high priest as well. But he also, uh, he would openly mock a lot of the traditions. This is a great episode. I, I mentioned this in a previous talk here. There's a great episode on, on the holiday of Sukkot. Alexander Yanai, he, uh, he's supposed to pour the water libations on the, uh, on the altar and then he pours it on his feet to mock the assembled multitudes, uh, to mock their tradition. So they all take their esros and start pelting him. And he almost died. Can you imagine? Like you have like, this tension between the nation, the people, and the leadership. And that obviously uh, gets another wrinkle in the mix when you have the invitation to invite the Romans, the new fledgling empire, the Roman Empire. They're invited in to settle a dispute between... Uh, two sons of the last queen of the Hasmoneans, uh, Hyrcanus and Aristobulus. They have a disagreement as to who's going to be the next Hasmonean king, and they invite Pompey into the land. And once the Romans come in, they don't leave. So from then on, they're going to essentially be uh, the uh, in control of, over the land for hundreds of years, uh, and they're going to appoint people to be kind of the puppets, the representative leaders, and uh, I found this on the web from Miguel, so a lot of the portal water line of the author definitely, that was bizarre. I am sorry. <laughs> I don't know why that did that. Wow. <laughs> I my phone turned off. No problem, no problem. No, no big deal. Yeah, it just like came out. That was like a voice, a heavenly yeah. voice. I'm sorry. I just wish I could understand what I was talking about. I guess I must have hit something. No big deal. Uh, either way, we meet a fellow by the name of Herod. Herod, we're not even sure if he's Jewish. There's questions as to whether or not he's Jewish, but he's the Roman guy in charge, and he starts murdering rabbis left, right, and center. 
but he also rebuilds the temple, refurbishes the temple, and right, you know, builds these um, uh, retaining walls that we still have today. The, the Western Wall is built by Herod. These fantastic cities he builds everywhere. Huh? Everywhere, all, all this Caesarea and all these just incredible stuff, you know. But you have so. He built Masada, that's right. Uh, we have so many different factions in the land of Israel, so many com- you know, competing entities, and uh, all that, of course, culminates in uh, the Great Revolt of the year 66. Obviously, we're going over, we're going through this very quickly. <laughs> There's a lot more details, uh, but uh, eventually culminating in uh, uh, the uh, Romans. Uh, you know, uh, methodically going through the land and destroying city after city and sieging, laying siege to the city. Whoever comes out is is crucified. Once you capture a city, you burn everything. You take everyone prisoner. Uh, you salt the earth so nothing should grow there. Really, really, really bad. And we know, like we find in... in um, um, just a little anecdote we find in, in Josephus that, that, that after the destruction of the temple, there were so many slaves that the slave market was flooded that the price of a slave was cheaper than the price of a horse. So you have just a terrible tragedy, calamity. The, te- the temple is destroyed. The city is destroyed. Um, and all the dreams of all these you know, competing world views are destroyed as well. So the Sadducees disappear, the Essenes disappear, even the Judeo-Christians, they disappear, they become Christians. All you have left is the rabbis. And we know, um, we look at this as uh, a transformation uh, that's obviously tragic, but it kind of had to happen. Because there's no way that that the Jewish people can exist with so much infighting. And we cannot have so much factionalism, sectarianism, um, amongst our people because that's not what the Almighty wants of us. The Almighty wants of us to be unified as a nation. And when we are fighting each other and when there's senseless hatred, baseless hatred, and when there's Jews killing Jews, God says, okay, I'll bring in the Romans. They're experts at killing Jews. Experts. And indeed, we look at it as a tragedy, but if you look at it in history, is essentially it was a purging, almost, if you will, of all these other worldviews. They're all gone. We don't find any... The, the Sadducees were dominant. They were an enormous factor uh, in the pre, uh, you know, pre-destruction era. They were more dominant than the rabbis. More dominant than what we call the mainstream people. They had, you know, they were the elites. They, were, they had all the money. They had all the influence. And the temples destroyed... All their dreams are destroyed alongside it. People have to choose. You want to be a Roman, right? Or a Greco-Roman, or you want to be a Jew. You can't be both. Uh, and that's a, like, once again, I would say that's a theme uh, um, throughout, uh, throughout Jewish history. Um, either way, Jews are experts at rebuilding. Uh, you look at this in modern times and what happened to the Jews in Europe, you know, the greatest genocide in the history of humanity. And look at us today, how vibrant the Jews are in the United States and ever more so in Israel. Where does this come from? We are resilient. We get beat down and we come back and rebuild ourselves. We still have all these factions. 
Yeah, I, and, and, I, and I agree. I agree, but uh, I, I, I would argue that the factionalism that exists today is a tenth of what it existed 100 years ago. What do you mean? Uh, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Well, we don't have that here. But Europe, that's really more of a European model. I mean, they have the same. You're talking about the, the par- a parliamentary mm-hmm. system? Yeah. yeah, but I, I think if you look at the parliamentary system, you find a lot of different kinds of Israelis, if you will, a lot of different kinds of Zionists. Um, and Israel, I think, does a lot to unify all these what would be disparate groups. And I think that, you know, that, uh, yes, of course, there's disagreements. Um, and if you go to the Knesset, you find some high-profile disagreement. Like, it's amazing what goes on over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, like, uh, you know, like, it, the, 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 uh, being cordial and being dignified is not necessarily one of the requirements to be a member of the Knesset. There was a story a couple, uh, a couple of years ago, amazing, you can find it on YouTube, where this, uh, there's, a Jew, there's a Jewish Chavert Neset and an Arab Knesset member. How could they agree on anything, right? Which is crazy. The Jews allow Arabs in the Knesset. Crazy. But either way, you know, some of these, these, these are like, like terrorists. They're people that advocate killing innocent civilians. It's just unbelievable who's allowed if they're duly elected. It's incredible. Um, either way, so this Jewish... Knesset member, she, she gets so frustrated with it. She takes his water and pours it on his head. Amazing. Can you imagine? Well, you've seen other fights in different countries where the politicians throw in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we have it in uh, in Canada with uh, uh, Mayor Ford. That's great. Oh, well, he was, uh, he was amazing. Well, I don't know about this one with pouring the water. That's that's what she did. Uh, she just poured the water on him. I can think of worse things. And yeah, but just it just you it's wouldn't imagine exactly in the no, you know the twenty tens for that to happen. Either way, it was, but there was a big concern about uh, Israel. You know, being that the Arabs uh, multiplied much quicker than the Jews, about the fact that there'd be more Arabs in Israel than in Jews just on that basis. But it's six million compared to two million. Yeah, well, it depends what you count. If you count in Gaza, right, with the Israelis, essentially said we're out of Gaza 10 years ago, right? But if you count Gaza, then then that's true. You know, then, then, then you count Gaza. It depends who exactly you count. Israeli citizens, you know, PLO uh, uh, or Palestinian Authority controlled areas of the West Bank versus um, uh, Israeli citizens in the West Bank. So it's, it's unclear how you, how you count them. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think, interestingly, a lot of Arabs would prefer living in Israel than living in Palestine, you know, uh, because... The economy. The economy, exactly. What ha- you say in an Arab country, but they don't have oil. What do they have? No. Um, they have nothing, right? Uh, so they have labor. They're actually labor. But labor is only as good as the people pilling, willing to pay for the labor. If you don't have the wealthier people paying for labor, labor becomes very cheap. So if you're a, an Arab laborer, you would prefer to work in Israel and to get paid in Israeli money and make a very decent living. 
so there's also some some fear fab I'm sure it most of the I, I'm sure if they didn't take a quote pro Arab line in the Israeli Knesset or in Israeli public life they might be threatened by you know their families might be so yeah, they, well, of course. Yeah, they, of course. So, they so there's some Israelis. The fruits of where they are. They probably privately are very pro-Israel, but publicly they can't be. That's right. Thirty thousand Palestinians a day come and try to get into Israel and go to work. Yeah. Thirty thousand. At least I would say it's even more. Yeah. But yeah, some of these people are probably downright. Some of their statements are probably down considered downright treasonous for against Israel. Yeah. But, that's right, but also um, I think that uh, uh, for them, we have to understand their perspective. In, in Islamic law, if you sell is what's called Islamic land to a non-Muslim, that's punishable by death. Then they're not playing games, right? And that was just in the news here about a year ago, where Arab people did exactly that. That they executed someone. Right, but if you if you're an Arab and you sell them, you might want to want to watch your back. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> this thing with the water, I haven't seen that. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna so I I, 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 I you guys an example here. I was I was in Israel two weeks ago, right? So for Shabbos, I was by my sister. She lives in the settlements. No, we call, call it settlements or occupied territories, right? That's only because of some green line that was concocted, you know, 70 years ago. It, it doesn't really mean it. it's still it's in, it's in, the, in Israel. You know, there are Israeli citizens that live under Israeli rule. Uh, but I noticed there's a lot of parks, a lot of public parks in, in, in the city that she lives in. Uh, so apparently... Um, Every every little plot of land that's owned by an Arab, they make a park out of it. But some Arabs are not willing to sell it at no price. They're, uh, they they they're unwilling to sell their land, and therefore you have a Jewish community. Well, what happens if an Arab comes out? Oh, I want to claim my land. Well, if there's a building on that land, you're you're you know that's problematic. So they make it into public parks. That way, okay, take the park. What are you going to do? Right? What are you going to do with the park? Right? It's not you don't have to destroy any houses or anything like that. But you actually have like these little pockets of you know most of the land. A lot of land was bought was bought in the in the nineteenth century. Lots and lots of land was bought by Arab land landowners who were who weren't around. Who were, you know were living in 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 what was then Constantinople, right? What do they care about their land in, in Israel? And people want to pay top dollar, give it to them, right? Um, so a lot of land was was actually purchased, uh, but some of the land is still owned by Arabs to this day that are not willing to sell it, and you know. Eminent Jews have to work domain. around that. Uh, well, maybe eminent domain—that's that would be a solution. Should have some version of that. What happens to the land? Um, just the other day on my Facebook page, there was a terrorist. So Israel went in and destroyed the terrorist's home. What happens to the land that is owned by that terrorist? Well, they they just destroy the home, you know, and they they don't actually claim the land. Um, it's a controversial. Um, Policy, of yeah. course, uh, but it, it has been proven There's to no search and like no seizure of property. No, 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 no seizure of property. They just, property. Destroy, they just destroy the property, and it's 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 been proven to be an effective policy at mitigating the urge to blow yourself up. If you know 
that mom and dad and all your siblings are going to have to find a new place to live, and there's going to be $100,000 or $200,000 in damages because the Israelis will send in bulldozers and they will destroy your apartment, hmm, maybe those 72 versions are maybe less appealing. Um, half of them are boys anyway. <laughs> no, but uh, you know when you're when you're when you're dealing when you're dealing with with someone who's willing to give up their lives for a cause, there's very little you could do, right? So one of the another thing, another thing they do, also controversial, even though it's 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 the right approach, they take pig meat. They take pig meat and they put it on the body. They bury the body with pig meat. And apparently, in Islamic law. If someone touches pit meat or, or, or is buried with pit meat, then they don't have entrance to paradise or whatever, their version of paradise. They're more Jewish than the Jews. And so if you know that you're not going to get your paradise anyhow, uh, because you see, like you, you can see videos of it. They, they drop it like on the guy's face and on his body. Crazy stuff. You know, but if you see that, it's going to uh, you know, lessen your, your, your interest in doing that. And yeah, you know, I can see why that could be controversial. But you know, if 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 you're dealing with the, with the people that, of course, not all of them are crazy or crazies, but a lot of them are. I don't know. Is it five percent? Is it ten percent? Is it twenty percent? Is it fifty percent? Most of them probably are not. They want to just live their lives and right peacefully. Um, but some of them are, and that's the reality. What are you going to do? There's no way to weed them out. How, how are you, you going to weed them out? Some guy takes his kitchen knife and starts stabbing people. What are you going to do? You know, how do you deal with such an enemy? It's not based upon motive uh, or, or uh, material motive. What are you going to do? You have to come up with these innovative, uh, um, yeah, um, 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 just uh, uh, arguments for them to, obstacles for them to uh, withhold from such behavior. Either way, BB is waiting for us to talk about him. We're gonna get there. I'm just do have this really, really, really quick. Well, in a way, we're we're there. Well, we are kind of there. Um, we have a story of Masada. We all know the story. That's kind of the last, uh, the last blow to uh, Jewish sovereignty um, at the destruction temple. Uh, we meet Hadrian in the year 117, and he makes very oppressive laws, and the Jews revolt. In the Bar Kokhba revolt, they succeed in actually gaining sovereignty over the land for three years uh, before the Romans come back with a fury and actually uh, destroy everything and make Jerusalem Jew-free and rename Jerusalem Alia Capitolina and rename Israel Philistinia and rename uh, all the cities in the land of Israel. And um, essentially Jewish life is no longer possible in Jerusalem. This was who again? This is the Romans, still the Romans. Romans Romans. Um, and the Jews, Jewish, the Jews that are still in Israel, most of them live in Babylon already. Jews that are in, are in Israel move to the north. They move to the north. There's you know, Tiberias and that area becomes the center. Uh, but essentially, over the next couple hundred years, we're going to see that the Jewish community in Israel is going to uh, weaken, while the Jewish community in Babylon is going to get very, very strong. Uh, thus, we have the Mishnah was written in Israel in the end of the second century of the Common Era. Uh, but the Talmud was written in Babylon uh, several hundred years later. And essentially, there's going to be a transition from Israel being a place where we live to
to Israel being a place that we yearn for and hope to get there and to be center of our Jerusalem. prayers and our thoughts. Right, so, the, so there is a ta- there is the first Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, is actually written in Tiberius, at the year 320, give or take. And the Babylonian Talmud is written in Babylon at the year 500. But when we refer to Talmud, typically referring to the Babylonian Talmud, not the Jerusalem Talmud. Either way, from that point forward, we're going to find very scant life, Jewish life in Israel, uh, while Israel is still the epicenter of our focus and our prayers, there's going to be several efforts to reestablish a Jewish community in the land of Israel. We know that the Ramban Nachmanides uh, in the 13th century, he's going to move to Israel and he's going to establish some sort of small little uh, uh, life um, and community in Israel. We still have today his temple, his, his, temple, his synagogue that he built. Um, we have in the 16th century in Tzvat, the great um, Kabbalist in Tzvat, like the Arizal, uh, Rabbi Joseph Cairo, very famously author of the Shulchan Aruch, the code of Jewish law, he lives there. You have in the 17th and 18th century some Jews moving there. They, they go to Vilna, the, the Vilna Gaon. Uh, he's going to be someone who is going to start the pilgrimage to Israel and stop and turn around. One of the great questions is why he actually did that. Uh, but his descendants, his, his students are going to establish the Jewish community, the oldest Jewish community that we have today, called the you know the Yerushalmi Jerusalem uh, faction of Jews that are there today. They've been there since the uh, the eighteenth century and the early nineteenth century. But you don't essentially have a mass migration of Jews till the middle and end of the nineteenth century. Uh, modern day Zionism, of course, is not a new idea. We talked about how Israel has always been the focus of the Jews ever since the destruction. Uh, but um, the political Zionism really takes effect in the end of the 19th century. Of course, we talked about Herzl, someone who is not going to look like the prototype of a great Jewish leader. Uh, assimilated Jew, couldn't read Hebrew. You know, he proposed that the nation, that the language of the nation should be German. Uh, he had a bar mitzvah himself, but didn't give his own his only son Hans a bar mitzvah. There's even a question as to whether or not his wife Julie was even Jewish. Either way, he is someone of great intelligence. He was a uh, he was a journalist from a very wealthy family. Uh, he had energy, boundless energy, and he, of course, we know the story. Uh, he was a correspondent for the Dreyfus trial in 1894. Essentially, a Jewish, a French Jewish captain was accused with fabricated evidence of selling secrets to Germany, and everyone's parading him through town, death to the Jews, death to the Jews, and Herzl is there, and he's like, I'm assimilated. I can't even read Hebrew. I don't observe anything. Why, why are they so angry at the Jews when the Jews are no different than them? And he concluded that the only solution to the Jewish problem of life in, in, in Europe was to have our own state. To have our own state. So he writes the book, and he establishes the congresses, and he meets all the political leaders, and he really creates a political movement to uh, establish a Jewish state, Zionism. Well, his kids, some of them committed suicide. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he died early. He died at the age of 44. Yeah. In, I think, 1905. Uh, but 
it's interesting to see what happens with the idea. So it starts off as being a very secular idea, but it spreads like wildfire amongst the very religious, but more, I would say, primitive Jews. Well, not, I wouldn't call them primitive, but, but less sophisticated, so to speak, the Eastern European Jews, the traditional religious Jews. So you have these essentially these two movements, the religious Zionist movement, and then you have the secular Zionist movement, and those two together still to this day comprise Zionism in Israel. And the attitudes are very different because essentially it's based upon different groundwork. And you have someone like Herzl who is very skillful at navigating tension that arises from having such different groups comprising the people of the movement. Right, he, they're able to make sure that everyone is included in this movement. By the way, another one who was great at, at that was Ben-Gurion. Ben-Gurion himself, he grew up religious, like most of the, uh, er, the early state leaders. They grew up religious, but they abandoned religion for Zionism, which is the phenomenon that, that the religious opposition to Zionism was very wary of, where Zionism would be a replacement for religion. Religious Zionism is the idea of Zionism being a part of a bigger picture. Israel is a central part of Jewish life and Jewish focus. But if it becomes a replacement, well, then it's very dangerous. To say, oh, we don't need the Torah because we're in Israel, we have Israel. We only needed it in Europe, want to distinguish ourselves from everyone else. That's a very dangerous attitude, but one that was very prevalent. And one that is manifest by some of the great Zionist leaders. But ben himself is someone who's able to navigate these two different groups, and he's able to accommodate the, relig- the religious people and the secular people, make everyone happy that you don't have, God forbid, civil war in Israel. Because you have opposing views, really opposing views, that are unified under one flag. Uh, but either way, we find this great idea that really takes tremendous... Uh, hold in, 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 in Israel with the people moving to Israel, the great idealists moving to Israel, someone like Golda Meir who was born in Milwaukee but essentially decides I'm going to move to Israel and becomes one of the great Zionist leaders and of course the Prime Minister and her Hebrew was like the, you know, the um, really American like accented Hebrew um, but you have people from everywhere you know, the Zionist movement was tremendously powerful, young people because it gave them something, to, it gave them hope it gave him, it gave him a, a future, it gave him a vision. When did the community Meisharim? So the Meish, the Meisharim, that's from the students of the Goan of Vilna. That's the oldest Yerushalmi, uh, you know, seven, you have to meet, meet people today that they're eighth generation Jerusalemites. They've been living there for, you know, for forever, essentially. And they don't recognize uh, Israel? Well, some of them don't. Some of them say, what do you mean? We, we don't re- we don't re- they don't recognize the secular state, the secular Zionism. Oh, I thought you know? the Messiah didn't come. Well, and it means that they'll say, hey, um, the, only le- the only way we can establish a state in Israel is a religious state. So secular Zionism is anathema to them. And by the way, interestingly, we had secular opposition to Zionism as well. Like the reform movement was virulently anti-Zionism because their charter, at least the original charter, was uh, had uh, a quote as follows from the Pittsburgh Platform of 1885. 
This is the official position of Reform Judaism at the turn of the century. Quote, We consider ourselves no longer a nation but a religious community. Therefore, expect neither a return to Palestine nor a sacrificial worship on the sons of Aaron nor the restoration of any of the laws concerning the Jewish state. That was written 12 years before the first Zionist Congress. Thus, when Zionism comes, that is viewed in opposition to what was then the position of reform movement, which changed, by the way, in Columbus in 1937. This is from the Columbus platform. These were all written in English. Like, these were written in English. We could just give direct quotes from what Zion, what reform Judaism believed at that time. Uh, in the rehabilitation of Palestine, this is from the Columbus platform in 1937, the land hallowed by memories and hopes, we hope we behold the promise of renewed life for many of our brethren. We affirm the obligation of all Jewry to aid in its upbuilding as a Jewish homeland by endeavoring to make it not only a haven of refuge for the oppressed, but also a center of Jewish culture and spiritual life. In about 50 years, we see a 52 years precisely, we see dramatic change in the position of Reform Judaism with regards to uh, Zionism. Uh, in Houston, we have two major Reform synagogues. Emmanuel and Beth Israel, that they split over support of Israel. Because the old school reform said, we're against the state of Israel. Right? The new age reform, they say, we're in favor of Israel. They split into two different synagogues. Either way, so Zionism, essentially, there is going to be uh, a religious Zionism, secular Zionism, there's going to be religious opposition to Zionism, like, like Bernie mentioned, and there's going to be secular opposition to Zionism. Or... Uh, uh, we're in. There's people say, "Hey, uh, why? Well, who needs Israel? Well, you know, if if we support Israel, then it shows that we're not so committed to our, you know, to Germany or to France or to the United States or to wherever you know wherever we live." But either way, as we know, there is going to be a founding of a state, and of course, it doesn't happen overnight. There's the Balfour, Balfour Declaration of 1917, the Peel Commission of 1937, which is the first time where. Um, uh, the British mandate, the British government essentially declared in their findings the, the idea of making a Jewish state alongside an Arab state. In November 29th, today, of 1947, we have uh, the partition plan. The United Nations adopts a partition plan to take uh, British Palestine and to divide it and have one half for the Jews in a Jewish state, one half for the Arabs in an Arab state. Unsurprisingly, the Arabs rejected the plan, while the Jews accepted it. Every single time there has been a plan and an agreement to allow the Jews to have a state in Israel, the Arabs have opposed it. 1937 Peel Commission, 1947 Partition Plan, even 2000, the Camp David Accords, um, where Ehud Barak, the prime minister at the time, offered Arafat, he offered him 97% of the West Bank plus Gaza and land swaps equivalent to those 3%, land swaps equivalent in Israel proper. Granddaddy offer. And of course he said no. And we know that the there is a resolution 
at the founding of the Palestinian Liberation Authority or uh, organization in 1967. They came what's called the Khartoum Resolution. In it, on line number three, it says as follows, three no's. No peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, no negotiation with Israel. Those three no's essentially dominate Palestinian mindset. They're not going to have peace, they're not going to negotiate, they're not going to recognize the land of Israel. If we want to negotiate a, a settlement of, of, of hostilities with Palestinians, yet the founding charter declares no peace, no Israel, no negotiations, how do we even talk with them? Like, how do we have a dialogue? How can there be any, any political dialogue? Well, they just recently uh, found out that in 2008, in Ehud Olmert, the, the prime minister at the time, he offered a similar offer, peace offering, to Mahmoud Abbas, and they rejected it. And you have, uh, today, we have uh, Gaza being controlled by Hamas. Hamas is a terrorist organization. Right? By the United Nations, by the United States, it's a terrorist organization. And they are in control of the Gaza Strip, and it's two million people. The Israelis left 2005, 2007, the Hamas, uh, they took control. Which, in my, in, my, in my view, is actually one of the great political moves of all time. Why? What happens when a terrorist organization suddenly starts needing to collect taxes and build infrastructure and right, pave the roads, and, right, establish hospitals and oversee education, commerce, and right, law and order? What happens? It's harder to become. It's harder to be an effective terrorist organization. So Gaza is now, for the past eight years. It's under the leadership of Hamas, and Hamas has to take political actions and be motivated by political as well as uh, a, a terrorist uh, um, interests, and therefore the terrorist interests get, uh, you know, get get uh, relegated uh, to secondary importance. So it's, I think it, I don't know if this was the intention because it's a huge debate in Israel today. Um, as to whether or not it was smart for the Israelis to leave uh, Gaza, because now it became a, 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 a stronghold of Hamas. But incidentally, Hamas now has done less terrorist attacks because they've been more focused on keeping the peace amongst themselves. Interesting. But Hamas also formed a unity government with Mahmoud Abbas. Yeah, of course. Of course, they're, they're the same. So now they're when different. you negotiate with Mahmoud Abbas, yeah, like the, the moderates are not quite that moderate, clearly. Taking over Gaza was a, a stroke of genius, in my opinion, for the simple reason that now the Egyptians have to control it. Oh, yeah, the Egyptians can't stand it. The Palestinians are all over Egypt right now. They're infiltrating in. They've taken over the whole electronics industry, and they're running the Egyptians. Yeah. So now they know what it's like. And the Egyptians hate the Palestinians more than the Israelis do. I so. do. Which is almost hard to believe. But yeah. They've also uh, found tons of Mm-hmm. So in, in 1948, on May 14th, the Egyptian, the uh, the British officially end their uh, their mandate over Palestine. Uh, that same day, the Israelis made a, a strategic decision 
to unilaterally declare a state, right? not wait for the United Nations to support and not wait for anyone, just unilaterally declare a state. They declare a state. Uh, the United States is the first country to recognize Israel. Right? Uh, Harry Truman was one a great friend of Israel. Or at least with regards to... I thought the Soviet Union. Oh, maybe, maybe, well, either way. Um, I, I was I maybe about to check, check the details. No, I think the Soviet Union was, the, I think it was close, but I think the Soviet, because at the time, I think so, the Soviet Union thought that Israel might become a communist. Well, because it, it was. It was, it was definitely Soviet, a socialist. Yes, country. definitely a socialist. A lot, a lot of uh, com, communes as well. The kibbutz is a commune, right? Um, but uh, either way, there is the next day, Five Arab nations declare war in Israel. There was it was not uncertain, not certain at all that Israelis would prevail. Indeed, they did. And in 1949, or 1949, beginning of 1949, there became there a a ceasefire essentially, but not 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 no peace terms were agreed upon. But there was a ceasefire. Uh, and the state began to develop, and it was, of course, very, very, very poor. There were uh, ra- rationings of food. Um, the they didn't have anything. Soviet Union. Uh, thank you. So, uh, and then, how much longer was the? Uh, uh, how much later? By Poland, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Ireland, South Africa, the United States extended recognition after the first Israeli election on. January thirty first, nineteen forty nine. Okay, so it wasn't it wasn't immediate. I stand corrected. Soviet Union was the first. But uh, either way, Israel, uh, you know, the Israel was uh, was established, and the fledgling state like started functioning, you know, and operating, and they were at a tremendous disadvantage. Uh, why? Number one, because they're surrounded by a lot of enemies. Number two, because they have a land with scarce resources. Water, they had huge water problems. Uh, and they, of course, very creative, very innovative. Um, do whatever it takes, right? Um, but uh, constantly had to deal with the realities of, of, of what it means to actually run your own state. And at the time, they didn't get any military aid from the United States. They, didn't get any, they weren't able to buy any military uh, equipment from the United States. They had to use these bat channels. They got uh, French. The French were the big suppliers of Israeli, uh, of Israeli uh, warfare weaponry uh, until they started developing their own, of course. Yeah, so in 56, there was a big skirmish, uh, the Suez-Sinai uh, 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 problem. Yeah, of course. Uh, now in 19... 1967, it's been 19 years. The state kind of got some steady footing, uh, but uh, clearly war was imminent because the Egyptians supplied by the Soviets, they built an enormous, enormous uh, army. They um, had very incendiary uh, uh, rhetoric. rhetoric. Thank you. Thank you again for those words today. Really appreciate it. Uh, and, uh, for example, on May 27th, 1967, Gamal Abdel Nasser, who was the president of, of Egypt, said as follows. He said, our only goal is the destruction of the, what's it called? Driving them into the sea. What? Driving them into the sea. The and Zionist it's, entity. Yes, yeah, exactly. 
Uh, and of course, we know one of the most dramatic wars in all of military history, uh, the Six-Day War, uh, where Israel, in, in six days, managed to disable the entire army of the Egyptians, right, when they made the sneak attack on, on, uh, on June 5th, 1967. Uh, they destroyed hundreds upon hundreds of planes, most of them on the ground. Uh, then they destroyed the uh, air. Uh, the then 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 they destroyed. Well, first they destroyed the runways. Then destroyed the planes, and then and then they were free to go. And simultaneously, they destroyed um, tens of airfields in uh, in Egypt. And within the first few minutes of the war, Israel had air superiority. Then they went and destroyed the said the same thing in Syria. Uh, and then after a couple of days, Jordan got into the, in, Jordan joined uh, because they believed the rhetoric that was coming from Nasser, that, oh, Tel Aviv is burning and Haifa is burning yeah. and everything like that, you know, and then, so they joined and then the Israelis trounced them as well. And on day three, they captured the old city of Jerusalem. And after six days, the stunning turnaround where everyone was sure that disaster was near and the Israelis are going to be destroyed. All the foreigners left. Everyone, they dug 10,000 graves in public parks. Crazy. Everyone was just short, just accommodating all the dead. And overnight, Israel's borders are three times, five times the size. They capture all of Sinai, capture the Golan, they capture the old city, the West Bank, everything. Uh, they're suddenly under Israeli control. Things are wonderful. What happens when things are wonderful? You get too pompous. What happens when you get too pompous? You're vulnerable. And a mere six, six years later, the terrible war, the Yom Kippur War, Israel is caught with their, uh, with their pants down, uh, so to speak. Uh, a terrible disaster, even though in the end it kind of ends in this kind of ceasefire, so to speak, just kind of the stalemate. There was no, they didn't have necessarily territorial losses, and they, you know, but still it was a disaster. Many, 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 many Israelis and Jews died. Um, and I would argue that that, contributed to 1977, the first quote-unquote right-wing government when uh, Menachem Begin is elected um, to become prime minister. Of course, in 1979, there's peace with Egypt, peace that has prevailed despite their flirtations with uh, radicalism recently. Um, Sadat, that's right, and unfortunately he gets shot as a result, but he's, uh, you know, they both are awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, and it's been beneficial for everyone involved. He's shot on October the 6th, I think. Thank you. Um, in 1994, Israel has peace with Jordan, right? King Hussein, of course. Uh, and uh, in 1996, there is an increase in, in, in terrorism in the land of Israel, and um, the young upstart, right, Netanyahu, who was at the head of the Likud party, uh, he is going up against Shimon Peres. Shimon Peres, everyone thought was going to win. Uh, there's a, a, an increase in, in, in terror, and of course, that contributes to the more hawkish leader getting elected. Netanyahu uh, was the, old, the first. Prime Minister to be born in the land in the state of Israel. He was really young, really dynamic, very charismatic, very polished and articulate. He becomes Prime Minister, uh, and he his uh, leadership uh, lasts till 1999, when Barack and then Sharon and of course the 
Uh, Barak decides to unilaterally withdraw from Lebanon. Uh, Sharon decides to unilaterally withdraw from Gaza. In 2009, Netanyahu is elected once more, and he's still the prime minister. Um, but if you look at Israel today, uh, we, like I said, it goes from 600,000 Jews in 1948 to 6 million Jews in 2015. It goes from being uh, a nation that is low on resources, surrounded by enemies, right, uh, has to scrape and scrap its way through uh, in its military engagements, when now it has one of the most sophisticated and capable uh, armies in the world. It is a, a bastion of research and development. In fact, it's the highest, uh, it has the highest percentage of GDP dedicated towards research and development than any other country in the world at 6.2% of relief, which is enormous, enormous amount uh, dedicated towards that. Uh, and every phone that you have, every single phone, has components that were developed and uh, manufactured. I don't know if they're manufactured, but at least developed uh, in Israel. Their water problems, they figured out a way to come with that, creative solutions to all these common problems. You know, um, now they're helping California solve their water problems. Yeah, exactly. They, they say, hey, let's desalinate. We have, a, we have a, the Mediterranean. It's full of water, plenty of water, mm-hmm. but it's full of salt. Well, let's just take out the salt. Well, how do you do that? I don't know. Figure it out. <laughs> yeah, and then Avis, did you see where Avis refused yes, uh, the vice that. president of Teva? Oh, he refused him a rental car, yeah. Uh, but either way, uh, and I also like to look at it from, let's say, a kind of a, a macro picture. We look at Israel, uh, where essentially it's a unified nation, even though there's so many different kinds of Jews living there. Uh, you have the immigrants, you have the locals, you have the religious, you have the non-religious, you have the settlers, you have the people that live in the in in in, in you know the settlement, and the people in Israel, and they're all and they're all together, and they're all s- mostly unified, and there's no civil war, there's no threat of civil war, and I think it's a wonderful thing. I think that that's progressing more and more, and I think that if we were to look at uh, kind of the religious perspective of establishing a state in Israel, and that kind of bring fulfilling the prophecies of bringing the Jews back to Israel. No one would make the argument that on day one, Israel was the way it's intended, the way it's forecasted to be in the prophecies. No, no one's going to say that, oh, this is, this is, we have arrived. But over time, where we see that there is more of an, uh, a focus on traditional Jewish values, not just a secular state. And the idea of secular Zionism is almost dead. Zionism today... In it, you know, uh, is most of the secular, not most, uh, a, a significant a portion of the secular Zionists, right? They live what's called the you know, there's the American dream, there's the Israeli dream. What's the what's the Israeli dream? To live in Israel and and go to the army and then move to America. <laughs> uh, that's what someone made that joke. That's the Israeli dream because we have hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of Jews living in America, like selling you, you know. Uh, skin products, right? And what happened to the secular dream of building a state? What happened to that? That died. The economy. The, it, well, the economy's good. You know, it's maybe not as good, but it's still, it's very good. And the people that came, they were committed to ideals. They didn't care about the economy. You know? But I mean, those are coming to the states. I mean, it's a tough life. It's a tough life, but they embraced it. Initially, they embraced it. Uh, I'll make the argument that, um, I'll make the argument that the that the secular Zionism died in the Yom Kippur War. 
where suddenly what happened? It was such a disaster. Uh, but still, we see a, uh, a convergence of Jews in Israel. And I think it's getting closer and closer to the ideal uh, that indeed is what's prophesized in the Torah. Jews will come back to God and come back to Israel. I think we're well underway. Uh, I encourage everyone to go visit every once in a while, support Israel in any way that we can. But not only that, like, we have to ask ourselves the question, why, what are we doing here? Well, what are we doing? What what are we doing? What are we doing over here? Why are we in the, why are we in Houston, Texas? Because we're supporting Israel. Okay, so but it means it's a good the question. I, I I'm not asking I'm not, I'm not asking the question to elicit an answer. I'm just saying that has to be our attitude. We have we need to go there and help them develop their gas. Their gas? What is that? Because they have found huge gas yeah, reserves. The Leviathan. That's that's right. We're, I mean, but we're Americans. We have that spot in Desdemona. You know. I guess, are you trying to say what are we more Jews? Or well, or that's Americans? a question we have to ask ourselves. But even, we can be Americans, but we, uh, as Jews, you know, that we're kind of, we, we really ought to be in Israel, you know? And why, you know, it, it, it is to be unthinkable, like, you know, uh, where finally we can fulfill our dreams of going back to Israel and to say, well, we're Americans, you know? So yeah, I'm not trying to elicit an answer. I'm just saying that you know that's the question we have to ask. Something to think about. Either way, guys, thanks uh, for outlasting. We got to BB. Uh, I apologize for going over time. Uh, thanks once again for spending some of our uh, some of your. Two thousand years for BB, right? What, what won't we do? This is a whole other subject along the same line. But I've always wondered, and I have some knowledge of it, I guess all of us do, but I've always wondered why is the propaganda so successful uh, that um, the, the Muslim, that Jerusalem is a Muslim property or whatever. Uh, yeah. I know about the Dome of the Rock and all that, but all the the, the, the most the most the, the, it's even more than the preponderance of evidence is that it was given to, to the Jews. It's an uphill battle. It's yeah, another battle, and, and, and one thing that we're not good at is propaganda. Isn't um, Jerusalem, I mean, is it even mentioned in the Quran? It's not mentioned once in the Quran. It's mentioned 750 times in the, in the, in the Torah, yeah, in the Bible, so Jewish Bible. It's amazing how so much Yes, so it's, a, it's an uphill battle, but, you know, slow and steady, right? 